This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the refined Simon Belanger. Today, we have a great episode. Simone's going to go history lesson, full history lesson, full <laughs> break it down on how the Fed actually works. I wouldn't say it's a history lesson, but definitely a little bit of a historical background. Yeah. Whatever, whatever you want to call it, brother. Uh, I, I'm totally good with that. I, um, I'm excited for this because, you know, it's, this is buzzword central. Everyone's a macro expert in the past two years. And so, uh, you know, just break it down into simple terms. And then I'm going to talk about my six point simple framework for selling. Uh, I, I hate selling stocks. It's, it's like, it makes me feel uncomfortable. It's like a dirty word, but, uh, sometimes it is necessary. And, and it, I'm going to go through my six point framework of things I think about. Uh, and then you're going to talk about the weed, uh, us cannabis, Stay off the weed. Uh, all right. But bef- before we do that, Simon, um, I wanted to jump in quick and do a very short segment called, What Game Are You Playing? I made a content piece last night on how I track positions in my portfolio. I own 20 stocks. It's more like 15 because I don't plan on selling the spinoff shares. So they're like, I think of them as one position. For some people, this is far too few in their view, uh, according to some nice little comments left on my content piece. And for me, I tell them that's just quite all right. I am very sufficiently diversified. And in fact, I'd be comfortable with owning far less because I am in the business of owning businesses, both publicly and privately uh, owned. I own three uh, businesses, and then I own twenty a, a small sliver of 20 of them that are listed publicly. I'm in the business of owning businesses and not trading them. And a guy wrote me in a, a nice article, and you know what? Very thoughtful. I love, I love when people push back on my ideas. It's actually quite healthy. Uh, saying I'm taking excess risk on by only, only, only owning 20 individual stocks. And the article points to huge volatility as you own less stocks. I mean, it makes more sense, right? If you own 500 stocks, you're going to have a lot less portfolio volatility than 10. But this is a key difference in the way that I think versus how people are taught investing in academia. And that is that volatility, which is the range on how much a stock swings and how how volatile the price is going to be, is equal to risk. And I do not believe that that is true, at least not in the game that I'm playing. For me, risk is one of my businesses gets materially worse. I'm caught holding the bag as competition eats its lunch. And so I'm going to get into this. This is a good setup for the segment I'm, do, I'm doing here on today's show on why I think selling is you know hard, uh, how to think about it, why I try to never sell, but it's impossible, and how selling is to do with risk for me of loss of capital. 
not volatility. Volatility equals opportunity. Volatility not equal sign risk. And so when you hear ideas on how you should invest from your peers, YouTube videos, this podcast, the internet, well, whoever, family, friends, ask yourself, what game am I playing? Am I playing the same game as them? And then play the game accordingly. Uh, so that's that's my opener for today. Yeah, and I mean, I, it also comes back to with what you're comfortable personally in your temperament. I think, you know, vol- volatility can be dangerous for someone who panics. Um, so if you have some people that will see their portfolio being very volatile, they may end up doing some pretty poor decisions because of that. I know you're not like that, but I think it's really important in the psychological element of investing. I think it's a lot of people that post on either it's Fintwit or a lot of articles. I find they forget about that. Because you'll see a lot of people saying like, oh, a dividend only strategy, it's not optimal and so on. And the numbers may totally support their thesis. But if and I've said that before, if owning pretty much only dividend paying stocks prevents you from panicking and selling when there is a massive market drawdown because you tell yourself, well, at least I'm getting that dividend, so it's keeping me in the stock. Well, that might be the best strategy for you because even if you went for the optimal strategy from a pure mathematical basis, it would not be optimal for you because your behavior would go against that. Um, and I think that's one fighting, of the, fighting your own behavioral bias. Exactly. I think that's one of the biggest blind sides I've seen extremely smart people they look at the numbers but they forget the psychological aspect and how person A versus person B will behave very differently in the face of volatility um, so I mean I'm probably I'm sure I'll say it again but I I've, I see this so often these very smart people and I always have that same pushback I say look you know, it's all nice and dandy, but if from a temperament perspective, the person ends up making the wrong move because they panic, you know, it's worth nothing. That's right. Yeah. So know what game you're playing, right? Like, yeah, if, if that's, I, I totally agree. I mean, that you can't, you can't disregard behavioral psychology when it comes to investing because it's going to matter more in returns. Uh, than probably any other factor in terms of like what makes a good investor. What is it? Peter Lynch who says, you know, investing is um, the most important organ is your stomach, not your brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> just like kind of your gut and, and how you react uh, to, to these kinds of things. And so for me, I know volatility, not equal sign business fundamental risk, and so I'm okay, I'm I'm cool with volatility. In in fact, bring it on. But if I'm like what you're talking about, and that that's gonna make me have silly decisions by only owning a few names, then that's not the game you want to play. Like you know, know the game you're playing, know your your how you're gonna play the game, and then play it accordingly and stick to it. Um, yeah, that's 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 what I think about this. Yeah, and. 
the investing strategy you have, you know, we talk about having conviction in different companies, but I think having conviction in your overall investment strategy is really important as well, because, you know, that will be a big deciding factor in terms of what, you know, the returns and the ups and downs you'll see in your portfolio. And if you're really convicted in your approach, you should be able to weather those uh, much better. And I mean, you know, you're the only one that knows what works best based on your temperament. Um, you know, we can talk about it. You can listen to the smartest people. Uh, that's fine. But at the end of the day, you have to know yourself. And I've said that time and time again. I mean, I use a hybrid strategy. People enjoying TCI, but, you know, I've said it here before. Um, I think I must be around like 35, 40% now of my portfolio in index funds. And then the rest is between, you know, Bitcoin and individual companies. I'm fine with that, but for a lot of people, that may not be suitable for various reasons. Um, but for me, you know, I believe in that strategy. I have conviction, and that's why it works for me. You have a different strategy than mine, and that's fine. I mean, it works for you. So I don't think there's a, you know, a lot of the times there's not really a right or wrong. I think it's really based on on a personal basis. That's right. Uh, you know, you and I have very different portfolios. Uh, we have some some overlapping names. I can yeah. think of a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have very different portfolios and we've both beat the market on a trailing 10 years CAGR. So, you know, here's the, <laughs> here I am, um, you know, pumping us up here, but uh, it, it is the truth. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the Fed. Yeah, uh, let's do got, it. You got a little segment here. Let's get into it. The U.S. Fed. And I'll definitely try to do something on the Bank of Canada because I've seen a lot of people wondering, um, even had the question like, oh, what if the Bank of Canada starts like having losses, what the impact is? So I'll definitely do a segment on that because I think, you know, it can get quite complex. I'll try my best to simplify it as much as possible. Uh, but, you know, I think it's really important. Obviously, the Fed is the Federal Reserve in the U.S. It was established uh, by the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 and signed by President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, This was done in response of the financial panic of 1907. And the Fed is primarily a regulator of banks that are part of the Federal Reserve System. And it's the lender of last resort. They have two primary objectives, but also some kind of, you know, some other key functions. So the two primary objectives meet most people must have heard this before. Stable prices, so obviously relating to inflation, and maximum sustainable employment. And then the five key function, you have U.S. monetary policy, stability in the financial system, regulating financial institution, payment system settlement, safety and efficiency, and then consumer protection and community development. So it's it's definitely, you know, there's these two main mandates, but um, it's overall a big kind of, you know, there's a lot of responsibilities on the Federal Reserve System. And the way it works, there are seven members of the Board of Governor, with the chair being, of course, Jerome Powell. And are they are nominated, the chairs are nominated by the U.S. President and approved by the Senate. 
Each governor can serve a maximum of 14 years. Each appointment is staggered every two years to limit the political influence. Uh, really, the Fed is supposed to be independent. So that's why, you know, in the past, for example, we've seen Donald Trump trying to like when Powell was in place to basically say like he should be lowering rates um, and stuff like that. But really, you know, in our democracies, it's really important for these central banks to be independent because you can look no further than Turkey, for example, where Aragon has really been uh, pushing for, you know, his policy onto the central banks. And that's been, you know, definitely a disaster over there. They've seen really high inflation. Now, in terms of You know, what we all know as the U.S. Federal Reserve, it's actually composed of 12 regional Federal Reserve banks that are each responsible for a geographic region in the U.S. So you have San Francisco, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Boston, New York, and I'll put an asterisk on the New York one because uh, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Philadelphia, Richmond, Atlanta, St. Louis, Dallas, and Kansas City. Um, each regional bank also has a president. And like I said, it's supposed to be independent, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve System. And the Federal Reserve System is made of the Board of Governors, Federal Reserve Banks, and the Federal Open Market Committee. So that's what the Federal Reserve is. The FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, is the Federal Reserve Monetary Policy uh, policymaking body. So it's composed of the Board of Governors, so those seven members that I talked about, the President of the New York Fed. So when I was talking about the New York Fed, I mean... You can tell the importance of the New York Fed here by the fact that they're part of the FOMC and four other presidents of these 12 banks that I I talked about that serve on a rotating basis. So the only permanent president is the New York Fed president. And this is the body that sets the U.S. interest rate. So you'll probably see when on CNBC or any financial site, whether it's BNN, Bloomberg, whatever it is, they'll often talk about you know, in the news, they'll say, oh, the FOMC minutes are coming out or if they just come out following a rate decision. Well, the FOMC is, you know, that body that I just talked about. It just have a small number of Fed officials that are part of that um, committee. And really, they make some important decisions. At the end of the day, though, obviously, the chair, Joan Powell, is the ultimate decision maker. I mean, You'll see sometimes in minutes there'll be dissidents, so there'll be, uh, you'll see some that are more hawkish, more dovish. So hawkish would be more aggressive on the interest rate hikes or higher interest rate. More dovish would be like maybe easing, potentially lowering rates. Um, so that's, that's how, you know, that will work in terms of raising rates. And so, so those presidents of each region, um, and this, this board. Yeah. They, would they re, would they report directly to the chair then? They would report directly to Jerome. How does that hierarchy work? Yeah, are that I'm not sure. Or are they yeah. like? Yeah, that's a good. Well, I think yeah. So uh, Jerome Powell, I mean, he's the chair of the uh, the board over there. I'm not sure in terms how it works for like the president's reporting to him. That's a good question. Uh, maybe yeah. I'll I'll look a bit more into that. But definitely one thing that's interesting for the different um, you know regions that I talked about. So the twelve regional Federal Reserve banks is that they will often. Th- focus also on different kinds of data. 
So you'll see sometimes like the St. Louis Fed will be focusing on certain types of data. Uh, the Dallas Fed will be focusing on other types of data. So one thing that's really interesting with the U.S. is they they come out with a lot of economic data, way more than we have in Canada. Um, the power relationship, I believe, you know, I would assume that there is constant discussion between the various presidents and the um and Jerome Powell for example and the board and the fact that they also serve on a rotating basis um you know I don't know whether they report to him directly or not but there's definitely obviously a power structure where the chair is you know the ultimate decider when it comes to the uh FOMC the Federal Open Market Committee um but gotcha. you know hopefully you know it makes a little more sense um I'll do a bit more digging to see how the reporting structure works if there is one maybe they're all independent bodies and they kind of you know work under the same framework but they make their own decisions but uh just wanted to demystify some of the terms there no this is super helpful and like I I don't really know who all the key players are here, so I'm, I'm learning a lot about this on the fly here. And uh, you know, it, I don't you don't have to go super into detail here off the off the dome here, but this is the U.S. Uh, in yeah. Canada here, the equivalent is the Bank of Canada. Um, what are there any kind of major differences that stick out? Uh, I, I assume I know there's a lot less people involved. Like this is a huge. A uh, number of people in different reporting structures and kind of a complex hierarchy. Uh, are there any other kind of key differences other than, you know, size and scale and importance uh, on a global scale here from the Bank of Canada and how they operate compared to the Fed Reserve in the US? Yeah, I think just the history of it. Um, I'm not super familiar with the history of the Bank of Canada, but um, I know in the US it was, you know, it, it was before being you know the federal reserve act in 1913 it was actually um you know the the federal reserve if you want or the banks were actually it was all privately run so the reason where it became the federal reserve was to have that kind of government body that would be the lender of last resort i don't believe canada was like that i think uh, i don't know when the bank of canada was put in place um, may have been when canada became independent which i'm kind of forgetting right now is it like 1929 or something like that 150 Two years. No, ago, that's right? the that's Confederation. We became Confederation. Yeah, we became independent right. later. Yeah, there you go. So I don't feel too bad for not knowing it now. <laughs> this um, is the Canadian Investor Podcast, yeah. folks. I, I think it was in the in. yeah. I think it was in 1920s. I think it followed the First World War. If my history is good, but uh, maybe I can search that. Do you have any you... good book? Any good book recommendations? If I was to to get into here and, and nerd out on uh, on macro. Yeah, uh, one that I'm actually currently reading, um, kind of a quarter of the way through, but it's fantastic. It's um, the history of money, but all the way to today talks about, um, you know, the reasons why we have money, uh, you know, from little tribes up to today talks a little bit about Bitcoin as well. So it's Broken Money by Lynn Halden. Ex excellent book. Uh, tons of 
you know, annotation. So if you want to verify what she's saying. So all these uh, quotes, these references, uh, fantastic book so far, like a quarter of the way in. But it's a very good macro book. And uh, obviously, I think it, it tells a bit where she stands uh, with the title. But uh, it's not like for those not interested in Bitcoin, it's not just a Bitcoin book. Um, it talks about Bitcoin a little bit, but it's really kind of a overall history of money. But it is a it's a brick. It's definitely a, a pretty. Uh, yeah, it's a it's, it's a thick. big book. Yeah, it's thick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thick with three C's. Uh, love it. OK, well, thank you for uh, for that. Uh, so that is um, how does the Fed work? That's, your, that's the title of your book. The How Does the Fed Work by Simon Belanger. Uh, framework for selling. All right. So I hinted at this. This is my six-point framework. I'm going to give uh, kind of an intro into how I get there and why first. So first of all, none of this is investment advice. Uh, I started the, the show today with uh, know what game you're playing and play accordingly. This is my framework. I encourage you to, to develop your own framework. The same way you cannot borrow conviction on a stock from anyone else, you can certainly use their idea generation, facts, uh, information they present to build your own conviction. Uh, and in this case, build your own ideas on what to do uh, and what you're thinking about doing with buying and selling and portfolio management um, and, and play your own game. Now, I've talked extensively about how my selling framework has been made easier by documenting the process of my investment thesis during the purchasing of the stock. I, I went into a lot of detail about this uh, two Monday releases ago on selling became a lot easier when you go into the approach of buying correctly. Writing down a few KPIs and competitive advantages for to track, buy right, sit tight, and monitor. The goal is to do nothing. The goal is to do nothing in terms of transactions. That doesn't mean do no research, you know, uh, you know, go to Bali and throw out your, your phone and computer for, for 10 years. It means the goal is to do nothing in terms of transactions. I spoke with Chris Meyer on the pod there, Simone, when you took two weeks off on the, on the pod. I don't know if you listened to the episode, but yeah, I did. I, yeah. Uh, he's great. He's so great. And he opened the show by saying, my ideal portfolio turnover is zero. That means not, not turning over, not exiting any names is, is the ideal portfolio turnover. Of course, in a vacuum, this is nearly impossible. But this is the goal. The goal is to do nothing. Because of my stage in wealth accumulation and not decumulation or drawing down, I don't sell winners. I don't trim winners. So since at all costs, I'm trying not to sell, my framework leads to, to selling when there is something fundamentally wrong with the business. Something has broken. Something has not played out the way that I've hoped. And, you know, uh, I sound like a broken record. You know, you get, you get a quarter every time I talk about the time I sold Spotify here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is compounding. Um, that is the audio company, not Shopify, the e-commerce company. Many of you have heard this so many times, but it's a good example. The thesis was gross margins and unit economics will expand as they scale, get more pricing power with the, with the labels, and mix in other forms of audio in revenue mix other than just music. 
layer on ticketing, like all this like optionality. Guess what? It didn't happen. Uh, gross margin margins hung flat at 25% for eight straight quarters after purchasing the stock. And management made excuses every single conference call. So nothing critically wrong with the business, but I've said, okay, you know, it, 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 this is not, regardless of the stock price, this is not what I, you know, my investment thesis is not played out. No hard feelings, no emotions, just investing based on facts. So here it is. This is the six points, Simon. Number one, the market dynamics have dramatically changed. Now, this is very broad on purpose. It, it you know, has the obvious competitive advantages eroded. We can think of you know, kind of examples. I'm just looking here, like super wide moat business that I have here. Let's call it Visa or MasterCard, the payment rails. If the Fed now payment rails is, uh, seriously displaces them, or a decentralized currency like Bitcoin uh, really displaces the transactions or something I don't foresee. Uh, is something very obvious about their competitive advantage eroding? Today, I say probably not to know. Uh, and so that's, that's me monitoring it. But has the business dramatically changed? And is there a metric I can point to that, that spells that out, like total transaction volume, cards issued, uh, you know, uh, payments facilitated, that they break all those out, cross-border volume, all that stuff. They, they break all of that stuff out. Um, and so that's number one. Any comment there? No, no, uh, no comment so far. So I'll, uh, I'll probably chime in at the end a little bit. Okay. All right. Number two, the business is no longer growing. That seems so elementary, but it's true. Revenue growth is required for long-term returns. I know people who sound really smart will try to tell you that that's not true. Yeah, maybe I'll just add for revenue growth is, you know, use common sense there. You know, if you use a hard yeah. rule, you know, you may have sold some pretty good businesses during, you know, the co-2020. Tougher yeah, times. Yeah, exactly. So you have yeah. to, you know, I think you have to be a little bit flexible and use common sense. Yeah. Every metric that I track, every KPI I track, I use a three-year CAGR. Um, I, I don't go anything more recent than that. And I mean, never say never, but that's just what I track. The math shows that long-term return to decomposition links to revenue growth, about 80% weighting. So more than any other factor by a lot. Look this up, research it. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go through it one day. I've talked a lot about return decomposition over a long period. There is no more leading indicator than sales growth. You know, the business selling more products and services than they were before. You know, it, it doesn't take, uh, you know, a mastermind uh, of of investor to to think about that. Just a quick thing, I've, you should mention that to uh, John Chen and BlackBerry. <laughs> Sorry, it was too easy. I'll give him yeah. a shout. I'll I'll BBM him though. Okay. I'll send him is on BlackBerry Messenger. Thing? No, I I'm no probably idea. not. Yeah. I want to yeah. say no. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. send him a BBM. Yeah, you know, you gotta have you gotta have sales growth. You gotta have revenue growth. And so if the business is no longer growing, I'm not looking to to suck on the cigar butt for one last puff. Uh, you know, turn 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 fifty cents on book value into eighty cents on book value and, and hit for the exit style. That's not the game I'm playing. 
All right, number three, the management team has demonstrated poor capital allocation. I have sold two stocks uh, in the past five years-ish that fit this criteria. The first one is Unity. Unity is the gaming engine business. The CEO is finally out the door. <laughs> Time to get interested in the stock again. Uh, John Citarello, I forget how to say his name. He was the previous EA CEO. Uh, so he's been a gaming executive for a long time, video game executive for a long time. You know, some days you just want to wake up and light money on fire. And he wanted to do that every yeah. day. It's like, you know, like, here's my morning coffee. And here is a $4 billion acquisition. Poor, poor, poor capital allocation. A uh, little too too sign of the timesy. Yeah, I think in for me, Teladoc was definitely in that category. Um, yeah. Poor decision to buy Livongo and then not, you know, achieving the synergies or, you know, the the growth based on that acquisition. Kind of a double whammy, I would say. Yeah. Yes. Poor capital allocation decisions incinerate returns. Um, and Algonquin Power. I've been very critical on this podcast. Uh, again, another management team out the door that I was critical of. Before out the door, um, just no understanding of how to build a utilities balance sheet. Just no understanding of how to build a utilities balance sheet. Mind blowing. And that's okay when rates are zero, but they're not anymore. Uh, and you Good know, news with Algonquin, it's almost yielding 8% again. Which, oh, yeah, okay. I'm not, I know some people own it. Um, that essentially, it was yielding. They cut the dividend and obviously the, the price drop and it was, you know, yielding over 10%, I think, before they cut it. Then a, the yield drop around 4 or 5% maybe. And now it's back up because the price has obviously post cut. Yeah. So now it's back up because the price wow. of the company has been uh, uh, not going in the right direction. Obviously, you know, most, uh, you know, we talked about recently. Uh, higher interest rates are are not helping, but that's a company that wasn't doing well even with lower rates. So, that's right. Yeah, the like you know, people realize that the mask they were wearing when every uh, you know everything's gone out with the bathwater here when it comes to high uh, highly levered utilities. We talked about that a couple episodes ago. Uh, there's just no spark right now for for this company right now in terms of a catalyst for for a turnaround. It's it's I don't think it's it's left or dead or anything. They still have tons of good assets, but. The management team wakes up, they find their morning coffee, they grab five bucks, they light it on fire. That's not going to work very. That's not going to work for a long long time. And you're right, yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's just (laughs) for you and me. Five bucks for them, five billion. Uh, The core KPIs stall out. Uh, Now, I don't own this business, but I think it's a perfect one that comes to mind on how I would think about it. Airbnb. They report four KPIs on the top of every 10Q. And one of them is gross booking value. Gross booking value is just all of the like volume on the platform. So if I go stay at a place for three nights, that's 200 bucks a night, that would be 600 bucks in gross booking value. So that's not revenue booked by the company. It's just the amount of volume moving on the platform. And if I see that that is flat, but revenue is and profits are explosive. I'm not saying this has happened. This is, an, this is an example. What does that mean? That means that they have higher take rates. 
and ultimately a worse deal for, for customers. Now, the market may not be realizing that there's a problem uh, with the business because revenue and, pro- and profits are going up and to, up and up and to the right. But structurally, their value proposition, the business fundamental value proposition would be stalling out. And I want to move on before the market is, is realizing that there's a structural problem. And the, sometimes this is possible. The market's really, really smart. But, but, but sometimes this is possible if you follow the actual business drivers and not just things you find on an income statement. Um, and so this is why I say the value of a Stratosphere Pro subscription is worth the $79 a month right there because this can probably save you thousands of dollars on a stock um, in, in some of these situations. So I track core KPIs for every single business. And if any of them stall out, even revenues going up, it could lead to number two where the business is no longer growing. And I don't want to be in that situation. All right, number five, very rare, very, very rare. A second, this is the second most rare sell situation. Uh, the last one's even more rare, but this is pretty rare. Better returns from here somewhere else. And now you might think, how's that so rare? Because it's hard. It's really, really hard to be in and out of names because B is better than C and A is better than B and D is better than F and F is better than X. This is really hard in practice with portfolio allocation. It sounds smart. It sounds easy. This just leads to more transactions and I'm trying to do no transactions. My ideal portfolio turnover is zero. Uh, so this is very Yeah, I rare. think this one- I did do it. This one is probably important for people to get to that price kind of anchor where they, yeah, yes. I think this is one that really people should have a good hard look. If they bought a stock at, you know, $20, now it's $10 and they say, well, you know, I'll just wait till it backs up to $20. You know, obviously it depends on the business, depends on the company, but oftentimes if you look at that, um, you probably will see better returns elsewhere because when you hear people saying that, and that's the main reason why they're holding on to the company, in my view, it's not a great reason. Yeah, it's a terrible reason. If it can just get back to $10, I return my money and then yeah. I'll sell it. <clears throat> terrible behavioral mistake. Um, I did do this this year with Moody's and S&P. They're the two credit rating agencies. I think S&P is the better business moving forward. X credit rating agency. I thought about it for two years-ish and I made the move. Um, but that's more so like I had a duopoly position and I'm just going full concentration in one horse versus picking two. Um, and so this is this is pretty rare. I would say in your situation that you're talking about, like, yeah, if there's a loser, I'm not waiting for some arbitrary price anchor. That's 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 craziness. That's silliness. All right, number six. Very, very rare. Because I don't trim winners. The valuation has gone full meme. And there's no other <laughs> descriptive word other than full meme. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know the you know the meme valuations that we saw. Um, that's the only case I'll sell on valuation is it's if it's gone full meme. Like if it's run up, I've, I've benefited from the world of multiple com- expansion. Only if it expands to full meme am I going to sell because it's gotten too rich. I know. It's going to hurt some value investor brains. I get it. I understand. 
Um, I only sell for the valuation has gone full meme because look at all the great winners of the 20 last 15 years. They have looked stupidly priced at several times during that time. And the valuation caught up because the forward, the forward multiples are not that crazy. Uh, Amazon looked nuts. Yeah, but there's also like there's Amazon nuts, but there's also like, you know, 2021 at the high, like nuts. Yeah, that's full me, exactly. Like, I mean, (laughs) I I'm guilty of it. Like, I trimmed Teladoc when it was at the peak. I mean, in hindsight, clearly I should have just liquidated when it was at the peak. But um, that's that's a mistake I won't make again. Even if I do like the business. When things just get crazy, I mean, I think you just have to, uh, you know, take the profits and sell it. And maybe you decide to buy back later. Obviously, it's not something I do very often, but you see stuff selling at, you know, 30, 35 times, 50 times sales. I mean, I don't know. It, it would take a very long time if things were going perfectly for them to grow into that valuation. That's right. And so, you know, what's to say? You never go broke uh, taking a profit. But the, the, the flip side to that coin is if the business is executing, don't be, you know, trimming the flowers and watering the weeds. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a sure way to, to limit long-term compounding. Uh, what is the quote from uh, Charlie Munger? Never, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. And uh, that's why for me, only full, only full yeah. meme. Yeah, we're talking my, extremes my at the here. Exit. Yeah, like, uh, but yeah. no, I agree with that. Um, so no, not much add. I think that was a pretty good list. Um, obviously, I added a few things while you were talking, and I also had a look at the New York Fed before I go on to the the cannabis. Okay. So how it works. So the president of the various Feds, uh, circling back to that segment, um, they would be named by their board of director. And then would be approved by the Board of Governor as well from the Federal Reserve. Um, so clearly, you know, Jerome and the rest of the Board of Governor would have something to say, but it's really, it's, it's run almost like a business, right? Where you have the president that reports to the Board of Director. So that's how the, the pirate, uh, the power dynamic. And it's really just the Board of Governor that is named by the president or nominated by the president and that has to be approved by the Senate. Wow. There you okay, go. Got it. I, I, I'm trying yeah, to wrap my head was, around everything. You can tell. I think I'm yeah. with you. I've, it's just I my personality is when like, when I, you know, I'm asked a question, I don't know. I have to like, I have to find out, like, I need to know how it works. So uh, yeah. Hey man, that's what makes you a good thinker. I think that that's a, that's a good yeah. trait to yeah, have. I don't know. I like it's weird. I've always been like that. I could be, um, before I move on, a little funny story. You know how wasps, are also like always like super intense and like late like August September like outside like they tend to be much more present yeah sure. so anyways next year I just hate yeah. wasps I see them all yeah the time, so just so. just have a look next year and people <laughs> listening beginning of the season you'll see them but they never bug you if you're having food on a patio or anything like that and then as uh, you get through the summer August September they start coming out and. Um, I did some research as to why. I won't go into oh. detail, but um, that's kind of the kind of stuff I want to understand how things work. So I'll just like random things. I'll, I'll why do wasps get more 
aggressive. Uh, well, they don't get aggressive. It's just their nests are shrinking. There's less larva, and larva actually secretes sugar when the working wasps go back to their nest, so they get a sugar fix. And then as the nest shrinks uh-huh. over the season, they can't get that sugar fix anymore. So that's why you see them on the patio table when you're having a drink or whatnot, because they just need that fix. They're not being aggressive. They're just being nosy. So uh, once you kind of understand that, you, I found like I used to not like them. Now I'm just like, eh, they're just after, you know, they just need a sugar fix. It's fine. <laughs> and we're just yeah, trying to get yeah, their exactly. nut. I get it. Did I send you the photo of when I got stung? This, uh, it was in July when I got stung by a wasp in the, ma- in the bottom of my Oh, hip. no, no. You'll have to send that to me. Oh, yeah. I'm going to send you the, <laughs> I'm going to send you, it looks like I have a botched lip oh. job. Uh, I, <laughs> I got, I'm gonna I'm gonna text you it after. Um, hit us up in our email if you want yeah. this photo for a good laugh, dude. The I because I was drinking a sweet like uh, seltzery type okay. drink. Yeah, they they were just trying to get their nut yeah. as you're talking about get that get that sugar. Uh, I drank it. And it was in there, huh? It, yeah, right there. And uh, I had like a botched lip job basically for the, for like four or five hours. Yeah. And uh, my my buddies got a real good <laughs> kick out. I'm glad I could be. Uh, the, yeah, the happened to my dad when I was that. a kid, but he's allergic, so we had to get him to the hospital. Yeah, yeah, same kind of thing. People were yeah. asking me if I was allergic, but I, it just yeah. swelled up. That's all. It yeah, is. exactly. So, uh, anyways, so uh, you know, we'll move on from the uh, nature, the Canadian yeah, science the nature update, or whatever. Um, so yeah, so U.S. cannabis update, like we alluded to. Um, so in late August, the Department of Health and Human Services (HHS) as the DEA, which is um, the Drug Enforcement Agency, to consider reclassifying marijuana from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule 3 drug. So this is actually following a review that was requested by the White House last year. And for those not aware, the U.S. classifies marijuana as a Schedule 1 drug, which is in the same category as heroin, for example, which is pretty <laughs> wild. But, yeah, I know, it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's so, so broken, it, it, you know, and. They are considered drugs with no medical use and high potential for abuse and or addiction. Um, it classifies cocaine and fentanyl as Schedule 2 drugs, so less, you know, than Schedule 1. So, you know, if people, obviously, the opioid crisis, fentanyl has played a big just, part. Just the drug killing, like, thousands of exactly. people. Exactly. Uh, That's it. Two. So, they're... You know, less serious according to this classification. And the, the reason is they are support, supposed to have some medical application, but there's still a high risk of addiction. And fentanyl is used for medical uses. I have a family that are um, in uh, medicine and especially in palliative care, fentanyl can be used when uh, things like morphine is not strong enough for, for coping with pain, for example. So it does have some medical uses. And then schedule three are things like... Like steroids, which would fall in Schedule 3, they're considered to have low physical and psychological addiction, according to the DEA uh, in the U.S. So that's kind of how they classified them. And in the past, the DEA has never gone against recommendation from the HHS. The decision is most likely to come in 2024. And although this is important, it does not mean that it is will be legal or decriminalized just yet on the federal level. And that's really important because a lot of people may have gone to Colorado and I think New York State has also uh, made it legal. They're in the rollout. I have some family over there. Uh, but 
it's still a I think Washington yeah there's state, 23 maybe. states actually where recreational use that is, oh, uh, is that yeah many? legal on the state level but it's still illegal on the federal level which is just really weird and then there's even more states if uh, it's legal on a med medicinal basis and I think Got it. You know, this is pretty important, I think, because they are trending slowly. And I think in the decriminalization and legalization eventually. Uh, but there's another piece of really important U.S. regulatory news when it comes to the space and especially for investors. Now, the Senate is currently considering the safer banking bill that would allow cannabis company in the U.S. to access traditional banking if they are operating legally under state or tribal law. And that's big because right now you can have these businesses, but they can't open checking account. And I know you know this, Brayden, and I'm mm. sure we have a lot of listeners that own businesses. Um, you know, try running a business without a checking account. It's not easy. Um, yeah, it would be pretty hard. So that's actually a quite a big deal. It hasn't got a lot of press, uh, but, you know, uh, if you own a business, I mean, it is crucial. So I think to me, this is signs that they're slowly moving towards decriminalization and um, maybe eventually legalization. Obviously, that's just an educated guess on my part. Uh, we'll have to see what it means, you know, in the next few years. Obviously, the 2024 presidential election will play a big role. There's also going to be, I, I can't remember the amount or the percentage of uh, senator and congressmen and congresswomen that are reelected or are up to for reelection at that point. It's usually, I think, maybe a third or something, something like that, right? Um, there's usually with the uh, uh, presidential election, there's always, you know, uh, a portion of them that come up for uh, re-election. So it'll be interesting to keep, you know, an eye on that. But um, from an investing standpoint, I know we have some people that invested in cannabis companies that are in Canada. It's hard to say what, you know whether it's going to be a tailwind or not. Obviously, the U.S. would be a huge market if it's eventually legalized on the federal level. But I think one thing we have to learn is uh, from the Canadian experience is you you have to really be careful. Even if legalization is announced on the federal level, let's say a couple of years, five years, 10 years down the line, uh, one thing that's really hard to establish, and we talked about it on the podcast, is the total addressable market. Because it is, you know, in the U.S., it's kind of, you know, uh, definitely, you know, fragmented in terms of legal legality when you look on a state basis. It's really hard to get data on the consumption overall from the U.S. population. Same thing happened in Canada. So it'll be really, I mean, it's hard to understand what the total market would be. And what we've seen in Canada as well is I think if you're investing in that space, you, let's say it's it has been legalized, you have to be really careful. Um, I think my perspective would be if I wanted to invest in that space when there's U.S. legalization on the federal level would be to take a step back and invest in the companies that are doing it on a very conservative and prudent basis. Um, I think that's probably going to be the best approach like we've seen in Canada, you know, just expanding to grab market share. Um, it's probably going to blow up in your face. So you have to, to keep that in mind. There's no reason to believe that, you know, the economics of it will be any different than what it is in Canada. Yeah, good point. It's like, you know, I, I've seen this. I've seen this movie before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
you know, so uh, not not to say it's going to rhyme the exact same way, but uh, I guess we'll have to see. It, it, it blows my mind that first part you made on just kind of how archaic yeah. the, <laughs> the classification system yeah. is and how the DEA and the laws comply to to that based on the, I guess what you're saying is the Department of Health and Human yeah. Services. Yeah. You have all these people jailed for for having some yeah, possession. I believe uh, Biden announced last year that he was pushing to get them all pardoned, um, which, you know, yeah. I think probably makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, I've yet to see a, a bar fight with two people that smoked weed. Uh, usually it's alcohol. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think most people aren't too, True. especially if it's smaller amounts. Right. I mean, obviously you see organized crime that's still in the cannabis kind of business especially in the u.s because it's not legal in all the states and on the federal level right so um, you know there is maybe a bit of a distinction there but for small amounts i mean you kind of feel for people that got caught with probably a you know a few grams of marijuana ended up in jail for that uh, yeah and then like six months later the state made it legal yeah that would be uh i mean <laughs> yeah because <laughs> the entire i was just looking at a map like the entire basically midwest to west coast is and then all the northeast states it's basically just like all oh, the blue states I texas guess. Yeah. tennessee down to florida yeah, okay yeah or like not it says medicinally uh legal yeah. only compared to recreationally yeah and fast extra revenue right i'm sure they'll try to find a way to get that uh, tax um who knows how much you betcha yeah who knows if it'll move the needle or not, but uh, definitely I think the Safer Banking Act um, that's being looked at by the Senate, I think that's pretty big because just allowing um, companies to bank uh, and potentially have, you know, different stores in various states, even if it's not legal on the federal level, I'm not quite sure how difficult that would still be. But I think just, um, you know, that banking act, if it goes through, I think will make a big difference. Because if you really want to shut down an industry, shut down its ability to bank. And you don't even need to make right. the industry illegal. If you can't let them bank, I mean, they're going to have a real, real hard time surviving. Shove a couple millions in the mattress. Yeah. <laughs> Very uh, astute plan. Am I reading this right? Cocaine is a Schedule 2 with medical applications. That's what they classify it as. Has, has cocaine ever been used medically? I think that really dates back to the early 1900s. I think back then there was some thoughts that there might be some medicine. Gives you an idea of out, how outdated it yeah, is. Yeah, I think most of the classification date back from like uh, the early 19th century. Yeah. The medical uses of cocaine... Yeah, this, this looks <laughs> it's like... It's like a newspaper article from 1922. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, sir, you need to... It's like a PDF, like someone scanned it from uh, a museum, an, archeolo <laughs> an old museum. This is crazy. Uh, this is nuts to me that this is, that this oh, is possible. Although, it, in South America, when I was in Peru, uh, coca leaves, you like... You put them in your mouth and suck on them like uh, almost like a, I don't even know. You put them in your lip almost like people would put uh, like nicotine patches in their lip, like Zins, um, because it helps with altitude sickness. All the like it, dude, you need it or else when you're at uh, 
like 15,000 feet elevation in the mountains of Peru, like I was, you're, you're sick as a dog. If you're not huffing on those things, everyone is. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe yeah. that's what it is. That's it's scheduled. Too. And the last thing I'll say, remember Canada became independent. So I was way off. Um, it's 1982. So officially, obviously in practice, we were uh, independent. I'm pretty sure there was something in the 1920s as well. Uh, following the first old the Canada Act. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, uh, so for those saying we don't know history of Canada, I knew it was in 1867. <laughs> I knew that was Confederation, but uh, I couldn't. My God, my history classes are you know 20 years ago, pretty much. So, so that that was the breakup of the British Parliament being able to like amend Cana- yeah. Canada's yeah. constitution. But officially, right? that's what. Yeah, we're. Because we we don't celebrate independence of Canada. We celebrate uh, confederation. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Like Canada Day is. is, So record rectified. So don't tweet at us saying we didn't know when uh, Canada became independent. (laughs) We'll know who didn't finish the episode. Exactly. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Canadian Investor Podcast where we uh, know nothing about uh, Canadian history. Uh, we really appreciate you tuning in. It's uh, It's been quite the ride. Simone, I was looking at it, and I have been podcasting now for almost 10 years. That's it's impressive, OG, yeah. OG you podcasting got out of the crib right and there. boom, started podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah. almost the exact yeah. amount you're older yeah, than uh, me. Uh, it's how long I've been podcasting. Uh, well, it's know, four years now, pretty uh, much, that we've been doing this. So, uh, yeah. Yep, yeah. October. I can't remember the first day because we had to switch, uh, you know, platforms. It's right about yeah, now. it's right. It sounds about right. Yeah, because I, uh, we met in Toronto in September. So yeah, I think it uh, within a couple of weeks we were set up. Yeah. Every October, I've basically every October I've basically launched something in the past four years. I don't know what it is. I guess it's just kind of like gearing up. And then like summer and September, September, October grind yeah. mode. You're like, okay, like not playing golf something. anymore. I can uh, work on lunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's that, but you also don't want to launch something in December. No, no one, no one really. It's hard. No to, one yeah, will exactly. care. No one will. You can't get the attention of people. You don't want to yeah. launch something in October, and then you're on your. Uh, on the golf course in July, yeah. August. Are you going to launch something on the golf course? Uh, no, but you don't want to launch in December. That's terrible. That's a really bad way to go. Spring or fall. Boom. There you go. That's right. The shoulders, yeah. the shoulder seasons. Thanks for listening, tuning in. We are here Mondays and Thursdays. We got some really good episodes kind of planned up content schedule wise. So make sure you're tuning in. Uh, we'll hear you through the holidays uh, as per usual. And uh, if you have not checked out join, I got two offers for you here. If you haven't checked out jointci.com, uh, you should because we go through our monthly portfolio updates and you see our beautiful faces on the video and all the graphs we share. And number two, if you have not subscribed to Stratosphere, we just made the pro plan cheaper. It was 200 bucks a month for all the KPIs because, you know, it's a kind of institutional tool, but... um was pricing out a lot of people and I felt bad. Uh, and we make money on the B2B stuff anyway. So I just, I dropped down to 79. We're not making all the bread from the, the one-off subscriptions. The bread comes from the big institutional B2B deals. So 
we backed off the the top price there to 79 and then you take a 15% off for being a podcast listener using code TCI. That is 15% off with code TCI on stratosphere.io. See you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simon may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.